support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. I'm almost, I don't know about you, I sometimes I look at this and think, is this ever going to go away? Is this going to be a couple of years of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so, we've never faced anything like this before. And, you know, I remember when it first happened, you know, when we first went on lockdown in March, you know, I thought to myself, I thought, oh, a month, you know, mm-hmm. a month at the most. And my husband was like, mm, I see this going through the summer. And I was like, that's insane. You can't shut down the economy for six months. That'll never happen. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? How are we going to make money? How are we going to work? And sure enough, we're rolling into August pretty soon. And there's no end in sight. So I've kind of stopped trying to predict or figure out what's going to happen. I'm just... Well, like, it's a different situation for you, though. You've got this uh, additional 2020 election thing, which pol- is politicizing it. So yeah, you're going to have a bunch of true. bunch of bullshit that's going to take you through to November from state to state. That's true. And then also, too, just Americans have this bizarre kind of what's the word? Um, Desire for freedom. Oh yeah, but it's uh, but that in like a negative way. They have this entitlement, you know, and I think it's wrapped around this whole like we're democracy and freedom of choice and autonomy over our bodies. And you know, so many people don't want to wear a mask because you know, it's my right not to wear a mask and the government's trying to control me and the government's it's all a big conspiracy to make everyone wear masks. Who is this mask wearing conspiracy benefiting? Like who is winning it? Like the fabric making companies? Like I don't understand. That's where the argument for me kind of falls short. Who is winning by like making everybody buy masks and and wear masks all the time? It's just so stupid. And don't get me wrong. I hate wearing masks. I actually have breathing problems. My nose is, I've always had issues with my nose. I, I desperately need surgery on it. So it's difficult for me to wear a mask. I don't enjoy it. But, you know, I, I, I want this thing to be as over as soon as possible. I try to be responsible. I'm just going to do what people who know far more than I tell me to do, such as doctors and scientists and epidemiologists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just... Uh, it's just so crazy. I, yeah. Well, I, I tell you what. I tell you what I think it is because I'm surrounded by the Bitcoiners, and a lot of the Bitcoiners are libertarians, and they hate the government. They hate any anything that comes from the government. And a lot of them will say, "Well, it'll start with the masks, and once they've told you they can wear, you, you have to wear masks, and then they'll come after something else." And like, like what? I, well, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. The guns. They'll come <laughs> What's after the your, next step. They'll come after your guns and. And then it's forced vaccinations and they worry about all that kind of stuff. But I was thinking about it. I was like, I think you can do two things at the same time. You can you can demonstrate and and stand up for your right not to be told, not to be forced to wear a mask, but then also still wear a mask because you're not a moron. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many other rights to fight for. I know. You know, in this country, like wearing a mask, like that's at the top of your list, really? I don't really? Th- I don't think your president has helped. Oh, don't yeah, I mean that guy's the worst. I've got obviously. A, I've made a bet on the election. I've bet five thousand dollars he's not gonna win. Oh god, I hope he doesn't win. It's so you know, and so many people are saying, Oh, he's gonna win, he's gonna win you know, people that don't want him to win. And I think I think we're so scared by how incredibly confident we were in the first round that he wasn't going to win. I mean, I remember sitting and watching the election being like, there's no way he's going to win. And with like mounting horror, watching the numbers and then finally realizing he was going to win and just being an absolute disbelief that that could happen. So I think uh, it really shook our confidence Listen, so much has happened since we met last time. Like, there's a lot mm. we could cover. I mean, what was it? Like, yeah. 
seven, eight months ago, six months ago? I can't remember. It was before I knew I was pregnant. So, yeah. yeah. It would have been at least seven months ago or yeah. more. Do you know what I did? I found out preparing for this interview. There's a porn, there's a porn lens for every major issue. There is a porn <laughs> lens for COVID. There's a porn <laughs> lens for Me Too. There's a porn lens for Black Lives Matters. I found out going oh, through yeah. this. And there's, yeah. There is a porn lens for everything so there's a lot of things i want to talk to you about because you know i'm interested in industry um you know i'm probably a little bit too shy to talk about it the way you and ginger banks talked about it because i have listened to a couple of your episodes since mm-hmm. we met uh the ginger banks episode was a real eye-opener to hear mm-hmm. two women talk about sex in the way you did and it's uh i think it's fascinating i think a lot of people should um, but I, I, I have a fascination with the industry, but there's so much to talk about. And the first thing I really wanted to talk about was on lockdown. And I'll tell you why. Because I saw a tweet from a guy very early on in it. And he was he was a journalist. And he said, OnlyFans has been a real savior for a lot of the adult actresses and actors. But this is no help for the directors and the writers and the camera crew. Right. And that crossed my mind. So, like... Just a broad opening. Like, what's it been like for, for you, Holly? So, I have an OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so but I've seen your Instagram. You've got a little bit kind of more racy. Yeah, so that, yes. Uh, I started posting my own nudes on there a while ago. Um, like, back in... I started doing it with more consistency, I think, back in October, so, you know, and it's just Playboy style, very soft core, um, nothing explicit, but it's done, it's done well for me. And I'm very grateful for that because it's literally my main source of income during this pandemic. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So as a director who's not really a performer, but still like kind of benefiting off the performer model on OnlyFans, um, it's, I guess it's given me kind of a unique perspective. So there has been a trend towards the personal content platform for performers that has been gaining strength over the last couple of years. Definitely. We see performers such as, you know, my good friend, Danny Daniels, who basically moved to New York, left the mainstream porn industry. She's no long, she hasn't shot for a studio in like four years and she's just been doing her, you know, before kind of OnlyFans really picked up speed, uh, like private Snapchats were kind of the thing that girls were making a lot of money off of. People pay a subscription to join your private Snapchat and and they access your personal content that way. So a lot of girls were doing really well on that platform and finding that they could make more money doing that than working for the big studios and they could own all their own content and do everything on their own terms and so we already started to see this shift towards the power in the, of the performer mm-hmm. much earlier than this pandemic came along. But the pandemic definitely accelerated it because obviously now all of the studio jobs are gone because everything's shut down. So girls have no choice but to turn towards these personal content platforms and pay them a lot more attention in order to make income. And there were quite a few girls that I knew who were very successful who weren't doing those personal content platforms really before, you know, they were shooting so much, they were booked so much and they're the kind of girls that really enjoy doing studio work and, and like being able to go to set, do their job and come home and kind of separate themselves from the industry, you know, not have to come home and shoot more content for an additional platform, but the coronavirus and the quarantine, you know, that, that work dried up. So they started to turn their attention towards that and found that especially with more attention focused on those platforms, more time to produce their own personal content, more time to market their own personal content that they were making a significant amount of money. So girls really started to, and guys too, obviously, but you know, let's be realistic. Girls make more money doing this stuff started to see that, wow, I actually can survive on my own for the most part. Now, this is not every performer. Mm -hmm. I think one mistake that people make is that they think, oh, every single girl can just jump on OnlyFans and start an account and make tons of money. Like, that's not true. Like, generally, you have to have a name 
or you have to be really great at marketing like Savannah Solo is. She's a girl I just interviewed for my podcast who literally was a nobody, started her OnlyFans account in January, and she's like one of the top performers on there. But um, she's just, she's she's kind of an anomaly because she's really funny and her Twitter's hilarious and people love her. But anyhow, so so not everybody is, you know, making an insane amount of money on OnlyFans and able to survive just only off of that. But a lot of the top performers are. So they started to feel a lot more powerful, a lot more independent. And, you know, finances, money is what's going to make you independent ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so that was a great benefit to them. So they've, I think, been viewing the industry and especially, you know, studio, big studio jobs through a different lens than they were before. So when this second kind of me too movement rolled around, as you mentioned earlier, um, people felt a lot more empowered to be able to speak out because they weren't afraid of being blacklisted anymore, losing work anymore. So it's definitely changed the industry a lot. Yeah. It feels like this is going to be a bit of a, and you'll tell me cause you'll be close to me, but there's an opportunity here for a radical shift in the industry that was probably needed. I, I try to remember when we spoke about it before, obviously if somebody's going to be working on a set such as yours, it's going to be very different from working on one of the predatory directors who maybe won't or observe or, yeah. or respect the boundaries that people have put in place. And you know, I've watched a, a few of the statements. Is it Aria Lee? I watched her uh, yep. video and I've read quite a bit about it. Um, I've discussed it, you know, I discuss things with Stoyer and Ali and a few other people I've met in the industry. And it feels like there's like a lot of industries have a chance to right now to change and reflect. So for example, a completely different point, but I was speaking to a guy who runs a massive tech company in Silicon Valley. They pay $3 million uh, a year rent in San Francisco and then not going back to their office everybody's happy at home, everyone's working from home, and they've got a fundamental shift in their business now. They're going to be a remote business. But COVID f- gave them this opportunity. It feels like mm. the COVID opportunity and what's happened with OnlyFans and then the rise of the Me Too within your industry is, is an opportunity for it to change. And and, and I, I don't know what that change will be, but like I, 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 I like this empowerment of the actress to be able to you know, choose how she wants to work, where she wants to work and run her OnlyFans account and perhaps just have a completely different business model. Do you expect shifts across the industry like this to be sustained or do you think there will still always be this darker side? (sighs) Um, I feel like one thing that I have learned in my many years in the industry is that I never know what's going to happen next. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I agree with you. I I definitely think that this uh, shift in power to the hands of the performers is something that's been a long time coming. It's been sorely needed. Um, Performers have been treated like, like, objects for so long and, and and not had their needs considered and not been treated like human beings. And that's always been really upsetting to me when I hear stories like that. For me, you know, the most important person on the set is the performer and a lot of people don't treat them that way. So I definitely think that, that this has given the way that this entire um, situation has given more power to uh, performers is, is wonderful. And I, I like to see that girls can take charge of their careers. Cause ultimately I feel that, you know, if, if performers are happier doing their jobs, then I mean, I'm happier doing my job. I want to work with people who want to work with me. I want to work with people who want to be there. I want to work with people who feel safe, who feel comfortable, who feel sexy and are enjoying what they're doing. I don't want to work with people who, feel like they are being pushed into doing something they don't want to do. Like that is a terrible feeling. So, you know, a lot of performers have said, well, I'm not going to come back to shooting studio porn. I'm just going to shoot stuff at home by myself. That's great. Like I don't have a problem with that. And I know that there's been a lot of directors who get very upset about it and they feel like they're going to lose every, you know, all the talent. And that's just not true. You know, there's a lot of talent who are excited to come back to work, who like the studio model, who like working on production sets. Cause look, let's be honest, like masturbating in your bedroom all the time can get old. 
you know, and there's something about coming to set and working with people that you enjoy working with. Obviously this doesn't apply to the predatory sets that you mentioned mm-hmm. and getting your hair and makeup done and getting wardrobe and getting like a, a script to follow and being able to collaborate with other people is, is really enjoyable. So I do think that there, there is going to be, there is a situation now where studios are starting to recognize that they need to approach and treat performers in perhaps a different way, give them more um, consideration, maybe give them more say in the kind of scene that they're shooting. And I think that's only a good thing. I feel like that's just going to improve, improve the product. And I do not think the studio model is going away. I, you know, I've seen all these headlines like porn is dead. Everyone's just going to shoot on OnlyFans from home. That is not true. It is absolutely not going to happen. There's still people out there that really crave that cinematic porn, the scripts, the movies, the whole production. There will always be a place for that. And there will be a place for personal content production as well. Because I think what fans really like about that is the accessibility to their favorite performers that they never had before. Mm. Um, You don't get that through the big studio model, you know. So I think, you know, porn is a big place. There's a lot of people that watch porn. There's a lot of people that enjoy porn. I think there is a place for everything. Yeah. And, and also it seems to be, there seem to be some people who are kind of, I want to say this in like the, the appropriate way, because I don't want to dis, uh, talk badly about an industry I, I don't work in, but it's like they're, they're dragging the industry up. And what I mean by that is that like, I don't have an OnlyFans account. I haven't checked out. It's just not my thing. But I'm not just saying this because mm-hmm. I'm making the show because I, I would admit I've, I've seen a porn. I've watched porn. But I I saw a film recently. This I'll probably get humiliated this on Twitter just for admitting this. But I watched this one drive that was done by yeah. Caden Cross. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like, like a whole new level. And yeah. it seems to me, and perhaps I'm wrong about this. But it seems to me that there's the female directors who are trying to raise up the game in terms of the quality of the production. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Caden's a wonderful example of somebody who's really breathed new life into the feature film and has produced some incredible content and, you know, will continue to do so. And I I love seeing their two. I love they're seeing more space for female directors. You know, it's been such a, it's been a male dominated industry for such a long time. It's wonderful to see space created for, for women in the industry. And, you know, there's a lot of wonderful male directors as well. So I I just think that the more level we can make the playing field, the more independent people feel, the happier they're going to feel with their jobs and I just think it's overall going to be a better thing for the adult industry. I think we're going through some growing pains right now. There's been some wounds that have been reopened. There's been some some trauma experienced, you know. But these these voices that have come out need to be heard. And I think ultimately it's going to make us a better industry. Yeah. So these open wounds. I don't know how much you want to talk about it, but um, yeah, a number of people have been named. A number of people have. You know, I saw with Ron Jeremy, he's now facing you know, prosecution. It's like, yeah. well, how did how does the industry progress from here? What needs to happen? Because there is prosecuting the individuals. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, in, in terms of the film industry, was prosecuted, but we still know there was a number of other people in the re- industry who enabled him, who supported what he did. It's probably still going on. Like, is there things that need to happen to give a fundamental shift in the industry? Well, I think that brands need to recognize bad directors, directors, because the problem is, is that a lot of like these big studio brands, such as Gamma, such as MindGeek, such as Mile High Media, even many vids, though they are their own independent kind of performer produced content platform. So they don't really count so much, but they're all in Montreal. (laughs) And we're all working out in Los Angeles, Florida and Vegas. Why is that? So. Why they I don't in, know. Why are they all in Montreal? <laughs> I don't know. I think there's a big tech. There's a big tech industry. There's not like a porn tax break. Montreal. No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think there's a big tech industry in right, Montreal, okay. and you know, ultimately, obviously, porn is being fueled by tech, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's moving us along. So they're not here. They're not on set. It's impossible 
and they have a lot of different um, brands. They have a lot of different directors, productions going on. It's impossible for them to like monitor every single set. So I think it's really important to choose your directors and your producers wisely to make sure that performers feel that they have an opportunity to provide feedback should there be any issues with certain directors and, you know, just to kind of really, I think ultimately listen to the performers. And I, and I know that, you know, my client, mind geek has been really active in that and they, we haven't started, mind geek hasn't opened for shooting again yet, but they're working on instituting a new kind of code of conduct for set where, um, they want to really ensure that their sets are safe and that the performers have the ability to provide anonymous feedback, you know, meaning like it doesn't come through the directors, obviously that they could speak to mind geek directly and say, Hey, I had this experience on the set with this director. It wasn't a good one so that they can be a lot more careful about the kind of people that they hire. So things like that, I think written consent lists are really important. Uh, since the first kind of me too movement, what I realized at the beginning was, you know, I've, I've always tried to run an ethical set. I, I mm -hmm. do my best. I hope that performers have always felt safe and, and, and open to feedback. But, you know, I, I think that I kind of foolishly assumed that because I was a woman and because I care about the performers and I try to show that I care that they would feel safe to tell me if there was anything in the scene they were uncomfortable with, or that they would be able to come to me if something was going on that they weren't comfortable with. But I realize that's not really enough. You know, I think just because I'm a woman, I can like read another woman and think like, Oh, she looks uncomfortable. She looks like she doesn't want to do this. You know, let me stop and talk to her. I don't know that mm. for a fact. So that really encouraged me to make sure that I, we sit down with the performers and talk about our do's and don'ts before the scene starts. Right. But then now with the second wave, I've realized that even that's not enough. And I really like the idea of written consent lists. Those really intense studios that do uh, BDSM really well, like insects and kink. I've always had written consent lists. The BDSM community is a wonderful place to look for boundaries, setting boundaries, you know, making sure that people are comfortable, that they're working within those boundaries, consent lists, that kind of stuff. The BDSM community has been very good about that. And I think that... Outside that of, you mean community. outside of porn, right? Like it, it, Because BDSM outside of porn has really strict boundaries Both. between... But do you think that, that comes... Do you think that has come from the community itself into making the porn? Because they understand boundaries better because of the way that yes. side works. Right, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And the BDSM community is a pretty tight knit community, you know, like people are very serious about their BDSM. Okay. Like if you're going to make BDSM content, you better know exactly you better know your shit. how it's done. You better know your shit. Otherwise their your audience is going to be very mad at you. And I used to shoot um, fetish content and I used to shoot uh, some light BDSM content. Um, specifically, I used to shoot for Taboo Magazine, which was a magazine that was run by Hustler. And let me tell you something, if I did something wrong, if I put like a sub collar on a dom because I thought, you know, Fuck's oh, that colleague. looks fetishy. Oh, the editor would let me have it. <laughs> you don't even know the difference between a sub and a dom collar. Come on. Those, exactly. Those are basics. <laughs> exactly. And I would be yelled at. What is the difference between a sub and a dom collar? So a sub collar, what, I think in general, doms don't wear collars. A sub collar is like, you know, a collar that you could attach a leash to. Yeah. Right? Of course, you're the yeah. sub. So okay. you're going to be letter. A dom would never wear a collar that you would attach a leash to because they're the dom. Yeah. Unless it had some way of like yanking the leash. <laughs> I don't know. No. No, no, no. <laughs> well, Peter, at least I prove not I'm, <laughs> I'm not from the BDSM community. That's not something I understand. <laughs> But what going back to the, yeah. the written consent list, what I really like is that, you know, they will have these incredibly long lists. I say, I don't say long, detailed lists about yet do's and don'ts, you know, and they'll have it rated on the scale from like one to 10, one being like, do not want to try it at all. Um, you know, five being like maybe 
you know, did it once, like might try it again, 10 being like, absolutely love it. And an ability to write in comments saying where you could write in, you know, I've never done this before. I'm interested to try it. Or I no, I've never done this before. I have no desire to try it. I've done this before, had a bad experience, but willing to try it again under different circumstances, whatever. So this, this ability to really provide very specific feedback about the scene. And this is something that is not only read by the other person that they're working with, but also the entire crew and the director. And it's signed off by everybody. And it's something that the director can have on hand. So, you know, sometimes, and I was speaking to somebody the other day, and I forgot who it was, who plays a Dom role. I think it was London River. And she says, you know, sometimes I get really caught up in, in my, in my role and I will kind of forget that the person I'm working with said, I don't like hair pulling or something like that. And, and I'll do it. And if the director and the crew and everybody there knows what these boundaries are, they can stop seeing and be like, whoa, 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 don't that, that that's on their no list. That's a no. And then they'd be like, Oh, right. Okay. Thanks. You know? So everybody's kind of watching out and making sure that they stay within those boundaries. And then another thing is too, is that you don't know necessarily what's going to trigger somebody. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be, you know, and again, I think another, another thing that, that I was mistaken about was I thought, well, I don't really shoot super hardcore stuff. You know, I don't shoot this, these crazy, you know, intense gang bangs and I don't shoot this double anal stuff. Hey, all this crazy. Do, do you know what, do you know what's funny that in our, our last interview that came up, like people asking me about afterwards, they're like, what's triple anal. And I was like, I know. <laughs> Because that came up in our last interview. It's difficult to achieve. Wow! Yeah, uh, that, that that was a that was an aha moment for me. Like what? Yeah. So you don't you don't do that shit. So I generally don't shoot that kind of stuff. So I you know always thought like we don't really need to have these conversations because we're not doing anything crazy. But again, you know I don't know what's triggering somebody. Maybe somebody again doesn't like to have their hair pulled because they had a bad experience once where someone pulled their hair, and if you pull their hair, it's a flashback situation whatever, you know, I don't consider hair pulling an insane, intense experience, but you know, somebody else might because of something that happened in their past. So I've just found that this, this necessity for more open communication is something that is really important. And I very much welcome. So do you think there's a chance that some of the, and I, I guess it tends to be male actors who overstep the mark. I don't know. Maybe it happens with females as well that I'm not aware of, but I, I would expect it tends to be men that overstep the mark. And and whilst there's some kind of like open wounds with some very serious allegations, it could it also be the case there are many that didn't realize they took it for granted the job they were doing and the role of the person they were in the scene with, and they themselves didn't realize they could overstep the mark. And is there therefore a job that to educate across the industry? Are you talking about the performers who are accused of overstepping? the other performers boundaries yeah because i'm like there are some people i I guess there could be different kinds of overstepping the boundaries some could be just blatant disregard and and onset abuse but some people could just have a like a mild overstep of a boundary without even realizing they are oh yeah absolutely i think that that happens a lot which is again leads back to why i think having these written consent lists and this incredibly open and detailed communication and the director's being aware of this other person's boundaries um, is incredibly important. And, you know, check-ins and just really cultivating a culture on set where the performers feel safe to speak up, safe to stand up for themselves, safe to say, I don't like this. I like this without fear of retaliation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, not getting paid, not getting hired again, because I think too, a lot of the problem is, is a lot of these cases, you know, we have very young girls who come in who, who haven't look, establishing boundaries is tough. And it's something that I've worked on my whole life and I'm still working on and I'm 41. You know, it's difficult to stand up for yourself, especially when you're young, especially when you're new, when you're Mm -hmm. surrounded by strangers, you want to do a good job. You want to impress everybody. It's a difficult thing to do. So as directors, it's our responsibility to make sure that performers feel okay to speak up. That's really our responsibility. Do you, uh, you ever heard of this website called The Silk Road? Yeah, 
Is that the like underground dark web yeah. website where you can get like anything you want online? Yeah, so it's gone now, but it was um right. it was it was main it was like a libertarian website. You could buy anything you want from you know, Bibles to I think it, I can't remember if they had guns at one point, fake passports and things like that, but they did the the primary use case ended up being drugs. And you could buy anything, mm. weed, cocaine, right. fentanyl, whatever. Um, and at the time when I first discovered, I used to I used to take cocaine, and so I used to yeah mm-hmm. I did. There's no point I've told people about this before. And one of the things that problems are scoring cocaine is like if you were ever scoring off a local dealer, it was always hit or miss whether it was good or utter shite, right? You, I don't take yeah. drugs anymore, but you'd like you'd pay your fifty pound for your gram, and you get home and like. Or you go out with your friends, it's like, yeah, this is great. And you have a great night. Oh, it's absolute crap. So you try and buy some more. And it was just a terrible experience. Like, you didn't have that experience with weed. You buy weed and you get stoned. Even if it's crap weed. No, mainly. I, I'm going to disagree with you on that. Okay. Because what did you buy? I, used to, I used to buy a lot of weed when, you know, like in high school. Yeah. I remember the guy in my Spanish class was my dealer. And you never knew what you were getting. That's what I was saying. I was saying this some some young person recently. I was like, you don't understand what it used to be like. Now you can get weed legally and you get this amazing stuff. And you go to like a store that looks like the fucking Apple store. And you can like pick whatever you want. And it's all amazing. Like in my day, we used to get like it was all stems and seeds. And I remember the seeds used to explode when you were trying to smoke them. And sometimes it just gave you a headache. You never uh, knew what you were getting. Uh, really, it's a real bummer. Well, it was less of a problem with weed. Like most of the time, especially when skunk took over, most of the time you could smell it in the bag. You knew you're fine. But cocaine was like a complete lottery. And like 20, 25% of the time, it would just be junk. Yeah. Like nothing in it at yeah. all. And then this website came out, the Silk Road. My friends like said to me, said, oh, there's this website called the Silk Road. And you uh, you can buy drugs on it. It's like eBay. And you you buy it with Bitcoin. That's how I discovered Bitcoin. I was like, really? <laughs> but the thing, That's funny. The thing, the game changer on everything is it had a review system like Amazon or eBay. So whoever That's you bought great. off, you just left a review and you gave it a score. So when you went to buy and you just went in the cocaine category or whatever, you would organize it in terms of uh, uh, reviews. And every single time I ever bought of it, it was great. Really, really high-quality good cocaine. Now, I don't do drugs anymore. I haven't done them in nearly six years, but th- that's my old life. But the problem it solved, well, it solved many problems. Yeah, we don't need to go into that now. But the point being is the review system, the reputation system, is what solved everything, like all the major it was like problems. A, it was like a Yelp for cocaine. It was a Yelp for co- Well, Yelp for drugs. <laughs> I mean, ignoring the fact that you had all the other things, like you don't have to go and wait outside like a – well, for you, it'd be a Walmart. For us, it'd be a, like Tesco car park. And will they turn up? And like, but you, and all the violence is gone. But the point being, the reputation system solved the quality problem. And right. I just wondered, like, does your industry have or need a reputation system? Because, you know, if a director knew he would like, if there was a LinkedIn for por- LinkedIn for porn, I should create LinkedIn for porn. There you go. There you go. But just say there was. Million dollar idea. And all the directors knew they were going to be rated and knew they were going to be reviewed. And the performers would go, yep, five star. I was looked after, boundaries respected. Could that not just eliminate the problem? Uh, yeah, you know, someone tried to do that actually a while ago, but I think it was more about performers. It wasn't necessarily about directors. Because look, let's be honest, there's also like crap, there's crappy people on both sides. Of course, there's yeah. also performers that are terrible people and um, they're flaky and they're late and they're on drugs and you know, they're liars or whatever. I mean, there's, there's, there's all kinds, right? So I think they, they tried that, but the problem is, is that there's still a lot of politics in the industry, right? right? So are you going to leave your name on there? Or are you going to make up a fake name? So then what happens if, okay, if it's all anonymous, what happens if somebody has a vendetta against you and they post a bad review just because who knows what the fuck? I don't, I definitely don't hate the idea, but I, I feel like it's a little bit trickier mm. than it sounds. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't hate the idea, but no, I get it. I get I, what you're saying. I mean, like LinkedIn, you know, some people never want to leave uh, like a bad review of an old boss because you might need a reference at some point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that, that. I think that's the thing too. Though, I mean, you know, I don't know. Twitter's going to become one big Yelp review. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of people who've been 
who have been outed on Twitter. And a lot of people lost their jobs over being outed on Twitter. I'm not saying that they didn't deserve it at all, but I'm just saying it's definitely um, it's definitely affected people's careers for sure. Well, and event- I've seen some- you can vendetta people then, couldn't you? Then, if that's happening, mm-hmm. if you could vendetta someone and cancel them without proof. Yeah, but I think you know there's a difference between I don't know one girl saying that she didn't like this person because generally all of the people that have been outed um, who have pretty much either had their careers severely affected or have been canceled, let's be honest, truly deserved it. Like for example, Ron Jeremy. I mean, you've got so many women with stories against him and and we've been hearing them all for an incredibly long time. So that was no surprise to me whatsoever. Uh, The Ryan Madison situation. I didn't, I don't know Ryan Madison. I've never met him. I don't know if you know about Ryan Madison, but he was one of the, one of the performers slash directors who had a bunch of girls come out against him. He had his channel removed from Pornhub. Oh, we didn't hear about that. So I read about him and uh, he does, he, does a thing with his wife, right? And they had like a house out in the middle of nowhere. And that's where they would take people to do the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And he would like do these kind of forced cream pies, you know, okay. Without either not telling the girl or saying they wouldn't do it. And they did. I don't know. Oh, someone read. What's her name? Somebody read. um, Her name was red. I know. I I know who you're talking. She said she was puking Uh, for days. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of stories that have come out against him. I right. mean, a lot. So, you know, when you've got multiple women coming forward with stories about somebody, I feel like it's pretty safe to acknowledge that there's where there's smoke, there's fire. There's definitely something there. But what happens there? Because, like, there's ostracizing and then there's criminal prosecution. Like, Ron Jeremy's been prosecuted. Ryan Madison's right. had his channel removed. But, like, if he's committed a crime, should that be investigated? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the difficult thing. It's, it's like when, you know, first of all, there's the case of the police not taking anything that happens on a porn set seriously. Right. You know, you go to work to have sex with somebody and then you claim that you were violated in some way or even raped in some cases, like you're going to get laughed out of the station in most cases mm-hmm. because people have a very one-sided view of the adult industry. Well, you were there to get, you've already given up your morals and you've already given up your integrity by being a sex worker. Like how dare you try to establish boundaries? How dare you try to, you know, um, demand respect for your body so so there's the whole stigma just in general against sex workers that makes it very difficult to come out and speak against people who have who have accosted you in, in some way sexually. It's the difference with Ron Jeremy is that his accusations were offset. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the main I, difference. Yeah, I, you struggle with onset accusations. Yeah, exactly. Like he's got a lot of women who have claimed that he's groped them and, you know, situations where you shouldn't be groping somebody like you're not doing a scene together. It's not like you're doing a scene together and he crossed a a boundary. You know, he, you were trying to get a picture with him or sign an autograph and he like fingered your vagina or something like that. I mean, Ginger Lynn spoke on my podcast about how he raped her on set. Mm. Julia Ann has a story about him accosting her uh, during a signing at an event. So you know, these, these are not new stories, but I think that, yeah, when it's in the context of being on set and you're there too specifically to have sex with that person, that's when it gets difficult. I'm not obviously clearly, I'm not saying that, that those are invalid claims that that's absolutely not true. I, I, I absolutely believe that a lot of women have had these horrible experiences and these men need to be called out for, their behavior but in terms of actual like criminal prosecution i think Mm. that that's a lot more difficult what do you think like do you think just i mean ron jeremy seems to have been around for for like forever probably making porn before you and because we're the same age probably like before we were born do you think this is something he got away with for years and hasn't realized the world has moved on yeah i think and i think that i think there's a culture like there's an old good old boy culture in the adult industry where, you know, men are just like, 
well, this is porn. This is how it is. And Ron Jeremy, Jeremy always, you know, his character was like this creepy, inappropriate, <laughs> unattractive fat guy, right? Yeah. So I think he thought like, it's okay for me to grow people. They expect it from me. I'm Ron Jeremy. This is what I do. I think he definitely does, doesn't understand <laughs> the Me Too movement whatsoever. And, you know, a woman's, a woman's, um, ownership of her own body and the fact that you can't you can't just grope people what a score for him though like playing off on that character and then (laughs) turning that into like somebody that people wanted to make films still a chance for me then i can still make it yeah well i'm kind of i think that i'm locked down i think well well that's the thing i think that ron he he played off this whole and he would make this joke all the time where like look at me i'm ugly and i'm fat and i can get laid like you can too like he gave hope to the average joe well he, I think. he also has a massive penis thing. it's not that big well it's much bigger than mine well, I, I mean, it's be, bigger than average, yeah. but I wouldn't like when, if we're talking like on a spectrum of porn dicks, I don't think he's, he's, you know, in the top 10. Well, maybe in the seventies, it was big. <laughs> I think, well, what made him famous was the fact that he could suck his own dick. Could he? That's the, that's his thing. God. Like that's what I think really elevated him to. To fame was his ability to suck his own. Penis. I really hope. My- I think that's every every man's dream. No, it's weird. I would not want to suck my own dick. Well, okay. So why do you? Does that? I don't think that seems a bit kind of gay. No, 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 not because it's give yourself kinda... a hand job, don't you? <sighs> yeah, but I just God. I hope my dad doesn't listen to this episode. Dad, if you're listening <laughs> to this one, turn it off. I don't know. Possibly because I can't. It seems weird. I don't know. I just, I don't want to. And I would, look, I'll, just, I'll admit anything on this. You've never done it before. Yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I've even ever tried to see if I could. I just don't want to. Like, and I'm, I'm not afraid, to be honest. I always said, like, every time I interview you or store anyone in the industry, got to be honest. I can, I can be shy. I can blush, but I've got to be honest. I just don't want, I don't want to. I don't want to. You don't want to suck your do, own do dick. Do you want to, do you want to go down on yourself? Do you want to, can you? Well, do you? No, I, I definitely can't. And uh, you see what I mean, though. Like it's a bit weird. No, or... yeah, no. I just. Well, first of all, no. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. I guess you're right. Exactly. It's kind of. I just think it's kind of a. It's yeah. somebody else's job. Yeah, somebody else's job. <laughs> it's just too. It's too. And then, 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 like. No, I'm not even going to say that. That's just going too far. Let's just say it has to end at some point. <laughs> ah oh don't that okay, all over so my face I have, so i have a question for you yeah. because i've had this argument with several men have you ever tasted your own cum no why not why won't men do that don't you need you should know what it tastes like so if it tastes bad you can take steps to change that i don't get that so many guys are like i'd never taste my own cum it's like I, I believe that you should like i have to taste your cum you should taste your own cum what, what, women have tasted ourselves we check ourselves. This is not. You guys should check yourselves. This is not where I thought this interview would go. There's going to be a, some breach. Retw- <laughs> um, I don't know. I just, I just have no, no desire to. I've. It just. It's not something that interests. No, I'm. I, oh, I now, now next I'm time you f- masturbate, now you're going to think about it. Now, now I'm going to think are. about it. Be like, yep. Holly, for fuck's yep. sake. <laughs> Uh, you should do it and um we should we should come we, back and we should discuss it we should come, yeah yeah i i, I just I'm, think how well that episode would do i just don't peter tastes his own cum yeah yeah but everybody my, would tune in for that one your taste test <laughs> stop this you're making me want to censor my own podcast listen i am not tasting my own cum i i will i will do other i will i will do other things i'm not sucking my dick and i'm not tasting my own cum they, they, well you're not sucking they're my because you can't yeah but even if i can't they're my hard nose that's that's it i've got a hard you that's my boundary that's my boundary and i want you to respect my boundary <laughs> here holly i am not stepping Fine. past that boundary jesus christ Fine. i it, i'm glad we're not videoing this because i feel like i'm red now <laughs> see this is why i can listen to you and ginger lynn and and uh, sorry, Ginger Banks. Was it Ginger Banks or Ginger? Now I say Ginger Lynn. I've 
Well, I've interviewed both of them, so. <sighs> Which was the one who talked about at the start with her boyfriend wanting for her him to pee in her butt? Oh, I think that's uh, Ginger Lynn. Oh, I got them mixed up. That was yeah. an eye-opener. Yeah. That was a real eye-opener. <laughs> yeah. Ginger Lynn was the one who dated Charlie Sheen. Yes. That was a great okay. interview, by the way. I absolutely Thank adored you. that. But that's the point. Yeah, I, she's great. I can listen to you talk about it in my own little private world. It's a bit like I released this interview with Story, right? It's one of the fastest downloaded shows of mine with hardly any retweets, likes, or comments. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, Story is a big name. She's also a very intelligent woman. She's she's amazing, but people listen to it without sharing it and retweeting it. And I, I you know, you want people to share and retweet because you want the exposure. But people yeah. didn't want to admit they were listening to the Story episode. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, porn is everybody's dirty little secret, even when it's not actually porn. Even when we're just talking about porn. Well, it's not my dirty little secret anymore. This is out there. This is going to be public. <laughs> <laughs> all right listen look let's let's get this back on a, a position where i'm slightly less embarrassed okay i do want to ask you about the the porn lens on the black lives matters and i don't want to go into a lot of detail uh. about it but it's kind of an interesting area to ask about because it is a category mm. so it is a category people have a range of fantasies and some people are, are race-based and right i'm wondering like does this is this now a problem that this can't exist and should it be a problem because i don't i don't feel like i feel what you're attracted to is what you're attracted to you know some people right. like like i like uh say i like brunettes or say i like tall women or say you know sh should we be rejecting the idea that you can have an attraction based on race i don't feel we should but i i'm not opposed to somebody telling me why that's a problem well, I think there's a difference between seeking out specifically black men and women because you find them attractive and seeking out interracial porn that perpetuates the fetishization of black men, where you've got these scenarios that stereotype black men as these, you know, these men who are like big and massive and like destroying and ripping apart these poor, innocent white girls. I think okay. that's, that's where it gets problematic. And, you know, it, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's an interesting topic. It's an uncomfortable topic. I mean, obviously I'm a privileged white woman, so I don't have any personal experience with racism, but I've tried to listen to a lot of other black performers. I've interviewed black performers and, you know, people feel differently about different nuances of it. Like for example, I had Isaiah Maxwell on, he said he didn't mind the interracial category. And there's been some people who have, you know, other black performers who have called for the cancelization of certain websites, such as blacked, um, such as dog fart. And there's what been, dog, I, dog yeah, fart. I know. Don't get me started. There's a website called dog fart. Oh God, I'm going to, so, you carry on. I'm going to Google this while you're here. In, in, uh, in incognito mode. I hate that name so much. But anyways. Dog fart. And then there's been other performers who have said, look, if you get rid of these websites, then you're taking away the jobs that a lot of black male performers were getting. We're getting through these websites. So it's a really tricky conversation. And I don't personally feel comfortable saying like it should be this way or it should be that way. I think it's important that we listen to African-American performers, how they feel about it. And, you know, there's, there's actually a petition that just uh, I saw come out today that Lotus Lane was promoting. Mm -hmm. She's an advocate for uh, the adult industry. She's, she's also a woman of color. She's a really intelligent, intelligent woman. She's actually somebody that would be really good to talk to okay. about this. And it was about, you know, trying to institute, certain changes in the adult industry. And, and I think the problem, I think, first of all, people of color need, um, there needs to be more diversity, right? We need to cast more people of color in um, scenes and not based on the fetishization of their race. Right. Okay. You know, like always casting like a black man as like a rapper or something like that, mm -hmm. you know, 
Um, I think it's important to to really diversify across all spectrums and and provide more work for uh, performers of color because you know typically it's 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 white people that dominate the adult industry and there's some amazing black performers out there. So I think just really it's important for brands to recognize that they need to have more people of color in their scenes, give them more opportunities, you know, really amplify their voices and uh, their exposure. In terms of whether or not we should get rid of the interracial category, that's 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 a different subject. That's a subject that different people of color feel differently about. I don't feel that I really have a platform. I don't feel comfortable saying how I feel, but I don't really actually feel one way or the other about mm. it. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And it's one of those subjects where I feel like, can I even be honest about, I just like, sometimes you want to have the honest, open discussion and you feel like you may even get counseled just for trying to have the discussion, trying to be mm. open, which is a really difficult place to be in because, uh, you know, I'm not a racist person. I'm, I'm not discriminatory, but at the same time, I'm trying to understand what it actually means. Like, is there a racist component to this or is, you know, be- because some people like in preparation, I had a look. So you get European, you get Italian, you get Scandinavian, you know, you do have the category of black. Is the term black inappropriate? Like, you know, and I'm just trying to understand because there are different desires. Let me read to you the bullet points in the petition that I mentioned, because I think okay. this is a great example of the issues that we are facing in the adult industry. And this is, written and being circulated by people of color in the industry. So I think this kind of helps speak for itself. Right. Okay. Um, The first one is the interracial IR rate. Now this is probably the biggest source of contention in the industry. And it's something that I've personally never agreed with. And it's the idea that white women can charge more money to work with black men. Um, it's called an IR rate or an interracial rate. And again, this only applies to specifically white women and black men. It does not apply to white women and Hispanic men. It does not apply to white women and Asian men. It doesn't even apply to black women and white men. It's very specifically white women and black men. And that obviously perpetuates the idea that there is a distinct difference between working with a white man and a black man. And in fact, in the past, women have been encouraged to hold off on doing IR porn um, and kind of set it as a milestone in their career for which they work their way up to and can charge more for like with anal and gangbangs and other actual more difficult sexual feats. So that's pretty much the biggest issue, I think, um, surrounding racism in the adult industry, but there's a lot of others. Um, the next one is devaluation of black men. Uh, black men are canceled with more frequency and with less consideration than their non-black male counterparts who commit rape and assault and are able to continue to perform and win awards. Black men are treated as tools to prop up the sexuality of non-black women. So that kind of goes back to what I was saying about interracial porn, uh, often being shown in the light that uh, it fetishizes uh, black men. Uh, Now we have devaluation of black women. Uh, Black female performers are told they must enter the industry ready to do all sex acts, while non-black women are able to build up to riskier sex acts to preserve their innocence. And again, those risky sex acts uh, can be traced back to double anal, um, anal in general, gangbangs, and then also along the same lines, what I mentioned before, that interracial porn was considered a higher tier that you work your way up to. Uh, and then black women are referred to as ebony when collectively we would prefer the term black women. There is also a disparity in rates between black women and white women, Black women are offered less money for the same exact sex acts. Non-black women are able to perform for much higher rates and with more frequency. Black women are signed less often to agencies' rosters. Black women are booked less often by major studios. Black women receive less budgets on the movies they do perform in for major studios. 
Black women are rarely, if ever, rewarded at major industry award events. Black women are rarely, if ever, hosts of major industry award shows. Black women are rarely, if ever, present on major industry magazine covers. So these are just some of the issues that we face in the adult industry when it comes to racism and porn. Yeah. It is fascinating how there's always a, like a, a porn lens to everything. Yeah. Is there, is there like a, has someone even made a pandemic porno yet? They must have. Uh, probably, probably. But I mean, I mean, you know, so few people are shooting. I mean, we just started getting back to shooting a few weeks ago. So uh, maybe something's being created right now. I don't know. So I was, I was going to ask you about if you're back to shooting, because I'm, I'm conscious of time. We're, a few more minutes of your time. But so I was trying to imagine your getting back to shooting might be a bit similar to the Premier League football coming back. Because when the Premier League football come, came back, you had the players but you also had the backroom staff, the physios, the doctors, and you had to have social distancing plans in place, but people can't play football without touching each other, they're, they're mm-hmm. flying into each other. And then you also have to have contact tracing amongst everyone involved in testing. Is it kind of similar in that you've got the performers as well as the the crew, etc.? Some people have to touch, some don't. You have certain rules. What's going on with this, or is it just back to normal? Uh, so luckily the AIDS pandemic and, you know, the fact that we have to deal with STI transmissions that set us up with a testing system that we've been using for a long time that has enabled us to get tested with a quick turnaround and, um, full transparency on those test results through something we call the PASS system, which is essentially like a database mm-hmm. that shows um, when people are tested, um, t- you know, within a certain day window, if they're cleared to work, if they're not cleared to work. So if I hire a performer the day before the scene, I can go into the system. And this is available, by the way, only to producers and other performers. I can look that person up and see, okay, they, they've tested for they're tested within this 14 day window. They're cleared to work. Now there's the panel that we test for is, is it's obviously HIV. And then it's like gonorrhea, mm. chlamydia, syphilis. There's a whole panel of uh, hepatitis. There's a whole panel of tests. And if somebody's not cleared to work, you don't know specifically what they have. So it's very careful not to violate HIPAA laws. So it just will show a red X saying they're not cleared to work, but you don't know if they have syphilis or gonorrhea or, you know, God forbid AIDS. So what we've done is we've, well, this is actually where it kind of gets tricky in an ideal world. What we're trying to do is add COVID to that testing panel, right? So then when you get tested, COVID is added to that. And so when you get your results back, if you're cleared to work, then you are negative for all of those things, including COVID. Now, the problem is without getting into boring internal politics, there's a couple of different testing systems. One of them called talent testing is pulled out of the past system because they essentially what what's happening now is that the crew has to be tested as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So before, obviously, the crew didn't have to be tested for STIs because we're not having sex with the performers. Well, one would hope we're not. We're not supposed to be. <laughs> so we're not having sex with the performance, so we don't need to get tested. But because COVID is transmitted in the air and, you know, we can easily pass COVID between us, now we have to get tested for it. So there's this whole debate over, okay, well, we want the COVID test to be singled out as a separate test from the rest of the STIs, right? Because obviously my, myself and my crew, we're not going to go in and get tested for all the STIs. We're only going to get tested for COVID. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if it comes back and says that we are not cleared to test, then we know specifically that it's COVID that we have. Yeah. So that violates, I guess, their argument is that it violates the HIPAA law in terms of like privacy. So essentially now we're saying you have this very specific thing. But it suits everyone to know this. Yeah, but I mean, look, and again, like, I don't know, this is just what I read. I I think there's more to it than that. But that's kind of like the basic reason that they pulled out of the past system. So, and also too, you know, they're supposed to have 24 hour turnaround. 
Well, now with everybody going back to work, they're complete, the labs are totally overloaded and people are not getting their tests back for now over 24 hours. Right. So people are running into problems where they expected their test back the next day by 9 a.m. They make the call time 9 a.m. Everybody shows up. Nobody's tests are back. You know, we're not supposed to be inside shooting until the tests are all back. The tests don't come back till five. The day's been ruined. So just it's like it, in an ideal world, we have this system set up, but it's not working perfectly. Uh, so yeah. I think they're still like ironing out the kinks. Yep. Because there's some people and there's some brands that want a 24-hour turnaround. I think they're starting to realize that that's just not possible. You're going to have to be happy with a two- or three-day turnaround. So we're still working it out. But we're working on it. Yeah. So you're you're back shooting soon? Yeah, yeah. I've I've gone and I've I've done a couple days of shooting. And then uh, I just want to add on top of that, we all wear masks. Okay. So even though we've been tested... The crew all wears masks. We sanitize everything. Makeup artist wears masks, gloves. The performer wears masks except for when they're actually in front of the camera. We try yeah. to maintain social distances, distancing. We keep our crews really small. So we take all of those precautions on top of the testing. I, I, I haven't looked, but I bet you can find some films where people are now doing them with masks on. It's like... Oh, totally. I'm, I mean, look. Yeah, that'll be a thing. You can find That'll be a fetish. Yeah, you can find anything in porn. So exactly. I'm sure so what, what are you making? It. What's coming up? What films are you making? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> so all I did was I haven't shot any sex since I started. I shot two days for Playboy, and then I shot two days uh, for myself for my art book and my website. But it was all solo oh, girls. Nice. My other main client is Twisties, for which I shoot Girl Girl for. They have not commissioned any new shoots yet. They said maybe August, I think with the spike in cases, it may even be September, which I will probably be on maternity leave because I'm due in October. So to be honest, I don't know if I'm going to be shooting again, like in 2020 at all at this point. Damn. Yeah, because that's a long time. Once I have the baby, I'm going to take at least two months off, possibly three. So. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's very it's very exciting you having a baby. I'm I'm at the other end of it from you because you're you're we're the same age and this is your first child, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm uh, I'm eight years from being done. So my eldest is sixteen, and my youngest is ten. Um, mm. And you're about to go through the most wonderful experience. It's just brilliant all the way. I mean, it's challenging, but it's brilliant. Yeah, I'm I'm How's, excited. How's mum feeling about being a grandma? Are you kidding me? She's ecstatic. Well, and also too, here's the funny thing. So my sister-in-law just had a baby like two months ago, right? right? So my brother and and myself are are finally providing grandchildren. And my mom has been dying for grandchildren for the longest time. And, you know, the poor woman, she's got three children all in their 30s, all married. Well, I'm in my 40s, but you know what I mean? Like all of child responsible, quote unquote, childbearing age. We all have careers. We all have significant others. We're all married. And like none of us were giving her grandchildren and like all of her, you know, sisters, brothers, whatnot, all my cousins are having kids. So I think she'd kind of given up on it. And then all of a sudden, like within six months, me and my brother are like, Oh, we're pregnant, you know? So um, she's getting a two for one. She's pretty excited. Well, it, like I say, it's it's the most fun you'll ever have. Have uh, I, I'm I'm really happy for you. I mean, you look great. You you have that glow, which is fantastic. But um, listen, I always love talking to you, even if I blush through most of it and then worry about my dad listening to it. I do love. <laughs> oh, talking I know. To you. My dad listens to my podcast too. Sometimes I'm like, oh fuck, why? Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I guess it. I mean, yeah. With you, I guess he's got used to it a bit more, right? He's a bit more exposed to this. My dad's really not. Exp- the first podcast he listened to mine was when I was interviewing my friend who was a drug addict, a very, very deep down the rabbit hole drug addict in Colombia. And I started talking about the fact that I'd had drug problems. And my dad never listens to my show. And then he chooses that one to listen to. Yeah. And, me up, Pete, and he was like, dad, this is the one he's going to phone on me. So I've listened to another one of your shows, Pete. <laughs> what's this about you sucking your own dick? 
But listen, look, I do love talking to you. Hopefully, America allows back in. I'll be back in Los Angeles at some point, and uh, we can hang out in person again. Yeah, give you some more PG tips. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, I was very impressed by that. I know you are. Well, listen, tell everyone where they can find your amazing work. So you can go, you can listen to my podcast um, on any podcast platform. It's called Holly Randall Unfiltered. You can go to my website, hollyrandallunfiltered.com for more information. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash hollyrandallunfiltered. You can also check out my not safe for work website at hollyrandall.com. And then on Twitter and on Instagram, you can find me just at hollyrandall. I am shadow banned. So uh, are you? Yeah, I know. It's such a bummer. Uh, and I'm verified on both too, which is really annoying. So sometimes it, it takes a little bit more digging, but I promise you I am there. Just spell my name right and uh, you'll right. find me. Well, I'll put it in the show notes. I definitely recommend checking out the podcast. It's brilliant. It's um, like I said, I've listened to a couple of episodes. When there's no Bitcoin shows to listen to, I get onto Holly Randall. But uh, look, great to see you. Congratulations on the baby news. That's amazing. And uh, wish you all the best. And I hope to see you again some point soon. Thank you so much. This show was produced by Tom Patterson and Danny Knowles. Our website is defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, where you can download the app from the Apple and Google app stores. If you'd like to support our work, please share the show out with your friends and family on social media, subscribe to Defiance on your favorite platform, and leave us a review on iTunes. My name is Peter McCormack. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, at whatbitcoindid.com, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance.